Hello and welcome to the second episode of How We Innovate Third Sector Talks, the podcast where we explore the future of the third sector. I'm Marcel Speller, founder of Brevier, and I'm fascinated by how technology is transforming charity funding. So I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Rosario Piazza, digital guru at New Philanthropy Capital, and Brevio's own guru, our non-executive director, Billy Wright. I began by asking Rosario to tell us more about his background in digital transformation. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and hi to everyone who's listening. Um, so I'm the data lead at NPC, and it's probably uh, better to start uh, about NPC, who we are and what we do. So NPC, which stands for New Philanthropy Capital, uh, is a charity, uh, first and foremost. Uh, we uh, exist to support the sector, uh, maximizing their impact and therefore to improve the lives of the people they serve. Uh, by sector, obviously, I'm referring to funders, trusts, charities, philanthropists, and uh, our mission really is to uh, enable them to understand what is the long-term impact of their work. Uh, I joined NPC around March uh, last year. Before that, I used to be impact and evaluation manager for a children's and young people charity called Battle UK. And before that, I used to work for the uh, West London, London Zone charity. Uh, my background before joining the charity sector, I used to work for a market research company. And when I moved to uh, London back in 2009, I'm originally from Italy, Sicily, uh, I came here to study forensic psychology, which is where the passion about uh, data come from. Uh, specifically in terms of my role at NPC, I'm the data lead, which means I'm responsible for everything that has to do with data. So implementation of data skills and obviously support our uh, clients and partners uh, implementing skills and finding innovative way of using data, not just to understand the impact, but also for needs analysis and monitoring. So what is it specifically about the transformation for the third sector that, I mean, you've obviously got a very broad background in data, but why specifically the third sector's digital transformation, Rosario? Uh, I think because there is uh, there are many challenges uh, when it comes to both digital and data, and, and that in itself, it's I always seen that as an opportunity for the sector to be more vocal and, and, and transparent about what they do. One of the things that really uh, strikes me about this country is the uh, attitudes toward uh, the charity sector and the fact that, you know, whether it's the wider public or the people who work in the sector, uh, there is really a strong support and, and attachment to, you know, the mission and values that we foster. So for me, in the, in the context of digital transformation in particular, this is really a vehicle, if you like, a mean for the sector to uh, reach even more people and become more effective and almost, if you like, showcase what is the actual impact uh, they have on, on, you know, their beneficiaries, first of all, but the wider society overall. Interesting. So, Billy, can we have a little bit about your background and what led you to where you are now with us? Well, thank you, Marcel. Um, so, yes, my name is Billy Wright and um, I joined the the board of Brevio around 18 months or so ago um, and I've been very closely involved in the development of the platform, um, the Brevio platform from its sort of early sort of 
ideation and sort of data analysis, if you like, you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve and how are we going to go about solving it from that stage through to now a launched platform. I'm an electronic engineer uh, by background. My career has really been built on sort of building teams and leading businesses as they navigate uh, digital disruption and transformation. Um, I've had most of my experience in the tech, media and telco uh, sectors, uh, but also had a fair amount of time in in financial services. Um, So I've been involved in navigating digital disruption for organisations like uh, Samsung, uh, Nokia and Microsoft, um, and also companies like HSBC and and, uh, EE. Um, And I was was really drawn into working uh, for for Brevio, um, uh, really actually obviously uh, because of Marcel's uh, amazing track record and obviously Marcel is the founder of of, of Brevio. Um, And I also really wanted to sort of apply the knowledge I had gained in more commercial sort of setting and more commercial organisations to the the charitable sector, uh, sort of in the hope that I could make a a bit of a difference and and specifically make a difference in how impact is delivered on the ground Um, and I'm I'm sure that's what we'll come to talk about soon. Indeed, thank you Billy. A couple of questions directly for you Rosario. Um, I'm really fascinated by the data labs that that NPC and you've led on and also especially the interactive COVID-19 data for charities and funders. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that? I'm, I'm finding them fascinating but if you could give us a bit more about about them and what their wider purpose is. Uh, sure. Uh, so the uh, Data Labs project aims to uh, essentially open up government uh, administrative data to the social sector and, and to help charities, funders and, and government bodies to better understand the long-term impact of their services on, on beneficiaries. Uh, the first of these Data Labs was originally launched back in 2013 and it's the Justice Data Lab. And um, for those uh, wondering out does it work? Um, basically, by comparing the journeys of the beneficiaries to the journeys of those who have similar characteristics, uh, the Justice Data Lab help organizations answer the questions, did we make a difference? So really, the overall aim is to unlock the power of government data and then uh, enable those who can, can't normally afford, for instance, impact evaluation, uh, the ability to uh, access uh, quite sophisticated analysis and and, uh, control group, and it's free. So I strongly recommend everyone to join this uh, opportunity if they can. I have to say, Rosario, that is the best best explanation of data labs that I've ever heard. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, My boss will be pleased. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell him. Don't worry. Um, What about about this amazing COVID-19 data? So that was an initiative that we launched back in in March. Like everybody else, we were facing unprecedented challenges and and crisis due to the pandemic and all the other consequences attached to it, if you like. And at NPC, because again, if you think about what we do and who we work with, we are in a place where we can connect funders, charities, social enterprises and governments. So we really wanted to leverage that position and we ask ourselves the question, is there anything we can do to support the sector in this time of unprecedented crisis? And what we thought was a good idea 
was to starting by unlocking the power of administrative data. So all the data that was available out there based on what was the knowledge uh, at the time of the, of the virus. So we were looking, for instance, at uh, demographic data, health data, things such as ethnicities, uh, economic indicators, and, and multiple deprivation. And the idea was really to generate a body of evidence on need uh, which was uh, easy to access and potentially could inform decision-making again during the time of COVID. Uh, but we wanted to move a bit to add another layer of data, if you like, uh, to that because arguably most of that data was almost historical because COVID changed everything. Uh, so we uh, decided to partner with uh, a few charities, uh, turned to us in Battle UK, uh, to begin with, in order to get a, a, a sense of what was the, the, the local level of demand and, and need on the ground. Uh, so again, to enable users to be able to make that comparison uh, when looking at uh, existing data on need uh, alongside current almost kind of real-time data on the level of demand and the characteristics of people in crisis uh, across the country. Uh, this is something that we, it's, it's a tool that is free for everyone to use so that there are no costs attached, <laughs> uh, people will be pleased to hear. And uh, we didn't come up with any sophisticated statistical analysis because we're not experts. Uh, what we tried to do was to convey in one place and potentially in a user-friendly manner uh, the plethora of data that is available out there so that people can use evidence to inform their uh, decision-making, whether it's grant-giving or deciding where provision should be directed to. Looking at those uh, group of individuals who we know are particularly vulnerable, like elderly people, BAME community, etc. And we've been implementing the dashboard with additional data on COVID-19, looking at cases, uh, death and infection rate. Rosario, I find this so fascinating. What I'd like to ask you, we've also built something in, in Brevio to match charities with funding criteria of the grant maker. And it's got massive savings in terms of the amount of time that charities waste doing grant applications. We're finding it quite hard to get funders to actually sign up to it. Have you got evidence of who's used your data? Uh, the short answer would be yes, uh, but it's a bit more complicated than that. So one thing I didn't mention, so that this dashboard evolved originally when we started this piece of work, everything was based on, on Excel. <laughs> so we, it, it was only through <laughs> time. I have enough rows in your database. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's a really big spreadsheet, like seriously big. One of the biggest I have dealt with. Uh, but because we wanted to make that uh, data to be, again, kind of easy to interrogate and digest, we explore different avenues as to you know what was the best tool to to publish and and, and make that data uh, interactive so I would say that in the first probably two to three months of this uh, project we were not in a position to capture the type of data uh, but once we went fully digital uh, with this platform, what we did was uh, we can see things such as how many views, uh, for instance, so the level of uh, interaction and usage, uh, if you like. We created a survey, which the link is attached to the, to the is available on the dashboard, uh, because as I said, we're not expert. We don't believe this is a perfect tool or the tool that everyone should be uh, referring to. There's always room for improvement. So what we tried to do was to seek feedback, so to uh, implement and change and tweak the dashboard accordingly, both in terms of content and layout. 
we do have uh, instances where we know who's been using this dashboard. I know that, for instance, the guys at St. John's Ambulance, they've been using it. Uh, our partners as well. So I was having a conversation with Battle UK last week, and I was really impressed to note that now their frontline staff, as well as senior management, are using the dashboard to inform how and where they're giving away money, support, and turn to us as well. Uh, they turn to us have a really solid system of data collection, but they were never really in a position where they were going to use the full extent and potential of the data. And now because of this collaboration, they're actually using the uh, insights and, and, and the, the evidence that is generated from this dashboard to uh, adapt to the current situations. And I know uh, some funders have been using it. We receive extremely positive feedback, for instance, uh, from the US. So the Bill Gates Foundation kind of nominated this as one of the most amazing uh, <laughs> digital initiatives and, and set of resources available. Obviously, they're based in the US, but you know they have a, they keep a good eye on, on what's going on around the world. Uh, we know that there are charities and funders who've been relying on this. We've been, we had many conversations with the National Emergency Trust, with the uh, UK Community Foundations as well. Uh, we can definitely do better in terms of data collection and we are working on it. But as I said, we are a charity, so we have to do the best that we can with the resources and time that we have. Okay, can I bring Billy into this conversation? That's been absolutely fascinating, Rosario. And many congratulations on what you've done. It's a real game changer. Billy, you've had a lot of experience in digital transformation across the commercial sector. What do you think the, the third sector can learn from, from the commercial sector in this field? Um, I, I, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose I'd start by defining what I think uh, we mean by digital transformation, because it could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I think at its, its simplest level, I think of digital transformation as the adoption of, of digital technology uh, to transform uh, existing businesses and services. And slightly more specifically, the replacing of what were historically, say, manual processes or workflows with digital processes and sort of technology, which at the end of the day will always then be underpinned by data um, to Rosario's point and that data um, allows you to make more informed decisions and oftentimes um, allows you to operate at a pace and a scale that maybe you were, would be restricted or limited to um, if you were reliant on a more manual sort of process and way of working. Um, and, I, and I think the, the other significant point other than looking at the technology and the process is actually the, the culture. Because I think if you look at um, any modern commercial business that has digital at its heart, which increasingly means virtually every business, um, you'll find that the most successful businesses have adopted a, a quite different way of working to the way maybe businesses worked 15, 20, 25 years ago. And they all tend to be captured by the sort of slightly buzzword, sort of they're all lean, agile and iterative. But actually, that's that is quite fundamentally different to the way businesses viewed um, how to how to manage change, particularly um, going back, say, that sort of 15, 20 years. And I think the, the point about being sort of lean and, and agile is pretty critical because it allows you to maybe think about delivering change in sort of smaller, more compartmentalized way 
And being iterative means that you're not sort of being, you know, wedded to a plan that you wrote 18 months ago and you're now trying to deliver against it. You're able to iterate the, the plan, able to iterate the business and adapt to the way that the world is moving because it's moving very fast. So I think with that very, very broad definition of what do we mean by digital transformation and that's the technology and the sort of new ways of, of working, and I think it's pretty obvious that the world has changed significantly in, in the last 25 years. And I think pretty much all industries have been impacted, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. And not all that change is is positive, clearly. Um, some industries have, have, have um, suffered significantly as new entrants have come in. But the key point... I think for this conversation is that you can't undo that. You know, the, the digital transformation genie, if you like, is out of the bottle um, and everyone needs to figure out how to adapt um, sort of to it. And I think arguably the third sector has taken a lot longer to adapt. Um, and there could be many reasons for, for this. Some could be related to you know, sort of less technical knowledge or, or capability, uh, particularly at the, at the front line. I think historically the sector's been probably more risk averse than, than some others. Um, and also, to be fair, it's also been very heavily sort of regulated and scrutinised. So to take risk and to make change is not always something that happens easily. But I think it's it's fairly obvious. And if you just look at what um, Rosario just described, um, you know, change is, is coming. The, the, the data that um, Rosario is, is collecting, the MPC is making available will drive change in the third sector. If we say, well, what are the big lessons learned from the commercial sector? To me, probably the most imp important one is that delivering the technology change is often the relatively easy part. Um, I, I don't mean if you're trying to build a quantum computer right now, that's easy because it isn't. But if you're trying to adapt relatively tried and tested digital technologies, which is what we're really talking about on this call, that isn't overly complicated, but what is much more complicated and much more challenging is driving the sort of cultural change um, and, and getting people to think and work in a different way uh, and to think about established sort of business models and power bases, et cetera, in, in, a, in a fresh way. Do you agree with that, Rosario? That's, that's what held us back? Uh, totally. Uh, well put. Uh, <laughs> I, I totally agree around the challenges. But uh, as Billy said, you know, uh, change is coming. So I think this, you know, what's happening around us and around the world, really, uh, is kind of giving us the opportunity to really think about how we can change and how we can build back better, really, and make the most out of the uh, opportunities that we currently have. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, obviously COVID is a, is a horrible disaster and has had all sorts of negative things, but it has, in a way, shaken people out of a certain complacency and, you know, that things had to be done differently. We have to think, we have to think fast. We have to work fast. We have to make decisions um, when we don't have all the information. It's done some good in that respect and that we realise we don't have to be 100% certain before we, before we do everything. We've just got to take some risks. And the, and the, the sector is quite risk averse. Uh, absolutely, uh, I think that's if we think about maybe the the barriers to you know digital uh, innovation or even the use of data and, and evidence, uh, risk aversion and, and fear of failure and uh, the fear of being scrutinized. It's it's one of the main deterrent, uh, really. And as you said, we're never going to get to the point, at least not in the immediate future, where 
the set of resources and tools and knowledge that we have is perfect. But one great thing about the sector, and I guess humans in general, is that we do have the ability to adapt and to uh, adapt fairly quickly. And I think the other thing that's one of the tenets that I've lived by in my life is don't let perfect get in the way of good. Um, one of the things I was, would like to ask you is that what is the right use of data for, for, for driving impactful data-led decision-making? Because I know I've been a bit obsessive about this. The charity sector is always going to have some degree of emotion. And I don't want to get rid of that because obviously it's, it's, it's empathy and emotion that, 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 that makes the sector as strong as it is. But at a certain point, we've got to use data and how can we not lose the empathy that we have, but actually get driven by data? It's a really good question. Maybe it's worth specifying for a second that obviously data is a kind of, it's a really huge category of information. And uh, there is maybe a tendency, yes, to rely a lot on quantitative data. So the, the numbers and figures and, and percentages that we keep hearing every day, whether it's the R rate or the number of children living in poverty in a certain area. But really what we we should be uh, looking at is a combination of quantitative and qualitative data. By qualitative data, I mean that, you know, case studies, the real life experience of, of the people on the ground who are living in crisis, but also the knowledge of those funders and, and charities of working in, in specific localities or that exist to address and, and mitigate uh, certain issues. So really, the, it's, we, we need to use all the knowledge and information that we have access to, and we need to share this. Sharing is caring, uh, so they say, but the, the, real, the real value in that is that this is how you create knowledge. This is how you create a common uh, agenda and, and share values and, and, and mission. So that's what the sector should be uh, aiming for, uh, really. And, and to be fair, in, in my personal view, the government has a lot to learn from the charity sector uh, because uh, charitable organizations have a connection and knowledge of different localities and, and localized issues and, and groups of vulnerable individuals that uh, is not really used to inform decision making at national level and maybe to some extent a local level as well. So that's why I was saying before, really, digital and data is a great opportunity for the sector to be a lot more vocal about what they do and what they know. I was fortunate enough to uh, listen into a, a great podcast yesterday, um, which was entitled, essentially, Is There an Imbalance of Power Between Funders and, and Charities? And it had some very eminent um, some very eminent people on the call. Um, and there was a fairly consistent theme that, that came through, uh, which was essentially, yes, of course, there's an imbalance of power between funders and charities. And actually what that can tend to lead to is that funders can tend to uh, just work with the charities that they already know. And the charities end up you know, d delivering impact on the ground, oftentimes in a constrained way because of the way funders have, have set out um, their or designed their, their, their funding. 
And what a lot of funders are recognising is that actually it's the cold spots and the unmet needs that really need to, to be more carefully looked at. And actually in their allocation of funding, they should be more open to risk and, and certainly taking a longer term view. So not necessarily always making restricted funding available, but looking at, at sort of more unrestricted funds and not just for one year, but over multiple years. But particularly this point of let's not just fund the normal suspects, let's look outside of, uh, of that. And oftentimes, uh, when you really get down to the level of, of, of impact, you find that it's some of the smaller, more innovative charities that are really delivering versus maybe some of the more established ones that always get the, the money. And I, and I think here, it's really interesting because the work that NPC and Rosario uh, are doing is the potential way to really open up that whole question set and try and understand, well, where are the cold spots? Where are the unmet needs? And just very, very practically use data to help channel funds into areas that before have really struggled. If you marry that with what Brevio is trying to do, which is to create um, a a marketplace between funders and, and charities, and by marketplace, I don't mean in the commercial sense, I just mean in terms of matching, you know, looking at supply and demand and matching the two. Um, you know, if, if you look at the, the data that MPC has with the, the matching capability that, that Brevio has, you end up with quite an interesting combination where some of those cold spots and unmet needs could really actually be addressed at scale and at pace and in a very, very efficient way, uh, which at the moment is clearly not the case. The efficiency is just not there. And in many cases, those charities are really struggling to get heard. Absolutely. And um, I'd just like to put in one quick point and then go back to that question that you're talking about there, there Billy, um, in terms of quantitative and qualitative information that you mentioned earlier, Rosario, because one of the pushbacks we've had with Brevio is that people say it's, it's a standardised grant application form and we're not standardised and it's much more nuanced than this. But in fact, uh, what we have in Brevio, yes, we have the quantitative information, loads of it in terms of where you are, who you're looking after, a huge number of quantitative data. But there's also qualitative data, you know, free text boxes where people can actually talk about their mission and talk about the projects they've done. And it is that combination of the two um, that actually leads to, to good decision-making. And if I could use an experience that I had myself on Brevio, I, I was born in Manchester, and so I, I put my funding criteria on a small fund on Brevio for community development in Manchester in, in deprived areas because of, because of COVID. Up came this community centre. I started reading about some of the things they did. They had a, a community centre and they had a nursery, and they found that the children that were coming into the nursery, age two, couldn't talk, uh, didn't even know their names, weren't even potty trained. And so they realised that they needed to go back to step and sort of almost go upstream and do parenting advice for new babies. And so I looked at that and I thought, gosh, that's really interesting. I got to, I looked, had a quick look at their website, that information there, picked up the phone, talked to him, really impressed with him. He needed £4,000 to just pay for somebody to do this in his community centre. And I transferred the money to him that afternoon. And I think it's that mixture of the very strong quantitative plus the qualitative that, that's really important. But also, let's talk about collaboration. A lot of people in the third sector are talking about collaboration. What do you think effective collaboration looks like across the sector? Sorry, Billy, whichever, whichever one of you wants to say something on that. Going back to, to your real life example, Marcel, for instance, I think that you just 
explain what is the value of, uh, you know, connecting different pieces of information, connecting different individuals, organizations and, and, and platforms, as Billy was saying, which is really it's about adaptive uh, programming and, and grant making. So having access to this kind of information will eventually allow uh, individuals and organizations to find out more about those cold spots, the unmet need and those uh, groups of individuals who are not supported or not receiving as much support as others. The, the real potential here is to mitigate those power dynamics that we know have been kind of affecting the sector for quite a long time. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's all doom and gloom and, and COVID has somehow gave us, gave us the opportunity and, and to the sector, to the wider sector to rethink how we, we talk to each other and what kind of conversation we have. Now, I, I have witnessed and I've been involved in what I would describe as really open, honest conversation, which in my experience, that was a kind of a first, really. But going back also to your point about standards and the taxonomy, if you like, I think that really digital infrastructures and better use of evidence have the power to mitigate what I normally refer to as the Tower of Babel syndrome, uh, which is in, uh, explained in a different way. It's that phenomenon whereby a, a, a group of professionals or people who work in a specific sector tend to describe the same uh, phenomenon uh, using completely different words. Uh, so obviously in the context of the charity sector, I'm referring to issues experienced by beneficiaries, how beneficiaries are described uh, and, and so forth. So really the secret recipe for, for, for you know, effective collaboration is open conversation, uh, knowledge sharing and transparency and, and co-design as well, which I think is really important. And by co-design, I don't mean just funders and charities sitting around the same table discussing what would be the most effective way to provide support to beneficiaries, but potentially, and I think this is the really exciting bit about the digital transformation, to uh, increase user voice. So to have an input directly from those beneficiaries who are often described and not necessarily involved in, in designing a particular program, what the intervention should look like, and also to understand what is the actual both positive and negative impact of uh, X, Y, and Z interventions. The starting point is, let's take the vision you just described, and then let's break that down into something that's um, a, a small and digestible sort of pilot, if you like, you know, obviously incorporates MPC, incorporates um, Brevio, but you know, critically also incorporates, you know, one or two funders who want to be part of the solution, who, you know, who want to be forward looking and, and look at ways to try and use data and, and use digital platforms uh, in, a, in a more sort of open and collaborative way. Um, you know, set that pilot up with those players and see how we can uh, drive impact in a particular area or for a particular set of, of, of um, beneficiaries. So start small, um, be um, agile in the mindset um, and then sort of build that up over time because what is inevitable is that we won't get everything right first time and we shouldn't try to get everything right and perfect first time, um, but we need to start somewhere. Um, so keep it small, keep it agile, pilot it, and then build it out with players in the sector who want to be seen at the forefront of trying to deliver this sort of change. 
that's a sound plan. Uh, exactly the same approach I will adopt uh, in this case. And I think uh, Billy is totally right. You have to start small, but you have to start somewhere. It's not going to be perfect. We're all going to make mistakes, but we make mistakes because that's where, where you know, the real knowledge is. That's where we, we can learn from. And, and I think that there is definitely appetite and potential now more than ever to have these types of collaborations. And what you described before, Marcel, is exactly our vision. So one day when finally COVID-19 will be a thing of the past, we, we, we're not aiming to, to shut this thing down at all. We think that the real potential here is there is, as I said before, adaptive programming and grant making, but also the, the ability to monitor the, the impact, the level of demand, try to work out whether there are areas in the country uh, where the needs are, have not been met, and, and, and then build on, on this model, uh, if you like. And, and I think that, you know, there are really interesting organizations and, and individuals, they are doing amazing job uh, at the moment. Bravia is one of them. Uh, 360 Giving, you mentioned before, the, the, you know, the idea behind the Grand Nav is just simply fantastic. Now, imagine a world where you have, for instance, Bravia, our dashboard and the Grand Nav connected together where users can access all these different layers of information in a streamlined, simplified manner. And if nothing else, I mean, obviously they can use the evidence available through those uh, tools, but they can start a conversation with those maybe small community-led organizations based in, in certain localities or maybe even other operating at national level. The potential is seriously huge. And, and that's real transformation in my view, and we can do it. It's doable. I, th I think, Rosario, what's and really interesting about that, I, I totally agree. What's really interesting is what's stopping us from, from doing that today? Because if you, if you break that down very quickly, you figure out that the technology is not what's stopping us doing that because the technology to deliver on what you've just described is actually relatively trivial. It, it's getting people to think in a more open and collaborative way. Um, and getting people to, to, to work in a, in a different way. That, that's the challenge, which was the point I was making earlier. And I think that's what, that is the major lesson coming from commerce uh, or from the more commercial sector, if you like, in, in looking at, you know, how does digital transformation, digital disruption, how, how does that work? You know, who, who has successfully navigated that in a commercial environment? And what are the, um, the, the obvious um uh, markers, if you like, of, of, of successful businesses that have navigated um, digital disruption. And, and it is generally, it's about having an open and collaborative mindset and it's about thinking in a, in a different way. Gentlemen, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you both very much. It was brilliant to hear from Rosario and Billy on how we can encourage change and best measure impact in a sector which we know can be slow to embrace change. Do join us again next time when I'll be talking to my friend Sir Tim Smith, the visionary behind the Eden Project about system change and what really makes a good philanthropist. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about Brevio and how your organisation can set up as a funder or sign up as a charity, do head over to our website, brevio.org.